Hi, everyone. Welcome to Such a Good Feeling. In today's episode, I'm so honoured to welcome a producer and songwriter who's been involved with so many masterpieces that have formed the soundtracks of so many lives, including his exemplary work alongside the forever timeless Donna Summer and production pioneer Giorgio Moroder. It's my absolute delight to welcome Pete Bellotti from sunny Sussex. How are you today, Pete? Well, I'm a bit shattered by the build-up there. <laughs> but it's there's a truth in it. I mean, you know, there's so many people that your songs and songs you've been part of have, have formed such incredible memories in people's lives. Well, thank you. So before we get into you as a creative person, what is the kind of music that's that you're listening to and that you were into when you were growing up before you started making it? Well, my the, the first thing that really hit me was Presley. Yes. Um, the first time I heard him, I just uh, I couldn't believe it because it was, <clears throat> I mean, it was definitely revolutionary because nothing like that had really existed in the form that he turned um, sort of country rock into proper rock and roll. Um, so I absolutely adored him and I remember going to the cinema and seeing him in a film called Loving You and all the goose pimples came out when he came out onto the uh, screen. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so it was Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis and, and lots of um, soul, soul music, Otis Redding and all that sort of stuff, um, um, Gene Vincent, all sorts of things. And was that the Presley thing? Was that the influence or the inspiration to you wanting to pick up an instrument? And presumably your first, and that first instrument was would have been a guitar, I presume. Absolutely, I wanted his shirt, his hair, his guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted everything, but um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I soon got tired of him after a few years when he when he stopped being Elvis Presley and became Las Vegas Presley. But um, no, he was, a, he was a big influence. But um, people like Larry Williams, um, I mean, he, he was, I was a big, big fan of him. I, um, and Jerry Lee Lewis, going to actually see him in, I think he's one of the most exciting performers I'd ever seen at that time. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, I was definitely into rock and roll at the beginning. In fact, on my jukebox now, because I've got an old Wurlitz, and I've got the original 78s of Presley all on some records. Wow. And uh, listening to them on that jukebox, imagining how people would have been dancing around the jukebox while that record was playing, is um, very nostalgic. I bet. And when was the first time you did pick up a guitar? Um, I was probably 15. Well, most of my friends had guitars, um, but I was left-handed and I didn't have a guitar, so I, I learned all the chords and everything upside down. Um, so when I finally got my left-handed guitar, I had to learn the chords my way around. And my father didn't want me to have a guitar, so I had a paper round. And um, there was an advertisement in the paper for a guitar that you could buy on the on the knock. And I forged my father's signature 
and had it delivered to another friend's house. And then I used to hide it behind um, a cupboard in my bedroom. Mm. And only, only after a few weeks, my father said to me, I don't know why you're hiding the guitar, just get it out and play it. So <laughs> you always think your parents don't know anything. But um, yeah, so I, I was probably about 15, 15 when I started. And self-taught, I presume? Yes, yeah. Well, except I had Burt Whedon's Play in a Day book. Mm. <laughs> that if, was... only, if only you could play in a day. It's interesting, is it? Like Burt Whedon's Play in a Day book was sort of the YouTube tutorial of its time. Absolutely, absolutely. Because you know, that was the only way you could, that was the only thing really, wasn't it, that was out there? It was. It was the only tutorial there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it worked. So... um how quickly was it from picking up the guitar to, to sort of getting into either being in bands or, you know, wanting to start writing songs for bands? It was very quick. Um, I, I was already writing songs before I picked up the guitar, but, but um, sort of in my head and writing the lyrics down and writing the tunes, it was just, that was sort of a natural thing. But definitely by the age of 16, I, I was in, little bands that we were all very rudimentary players. But, uh, and I, I remember we had a, a, an amplifier built. We shared all the money between us and we put four guitars into this amp and it could, the amp just distorted. There was nothing coming out of it. So, so it, was a, it was a bad start. But um, just joined little bits and bands and then um, I was in a, a five-piece and then a six-piece with some brass. and. Uh, and then I f- finally, when I was 17, there was a, a, I lived in Stevenage at that time. I'd come from Barnet and moved to Stevenage, and, and there was a professional band called Linda Lane and the Sinners. And um, I was coming back from one of our band rehearsals, and I heard one of the guys in, the, in our band say, um, Linda, Linda Lane and the Sinners have lost a guitarist, they're looking for a new one. And I just kept stum. And um, the next day I, I got hold of them and went down for an audition and got the job. And suddenly I was a professional musician in this band. And, uh, and that was my start, really. And am I right in saying that your time in that band was, in principle, one of the first reasons or one of the first times that you actually went to Germany as touring with that band? Yes. We spent about two years here, made, a f- I think, about four or five singles with um, EMI um, at Abbey Road. Um, none of them made it, really, at all. Um, we were in the charts for about two weeks in America. <laughs> um, and then one day we got um, an offer of going to Germany to play. And it's for four weeks in a club. And it appealed to us because four weeks without traveling, living in a hotel, and, and, uh, and the money was really good. It was just really appealed. So we did that in Hanover and Braunschweig. And then, of course, we ended up at the Star Club and the Top Ten in Hamburg, which was how to grow up very quickly. Um, I bet. It was a, such a wild town, or city, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, it was 
the gigs like Saturday nights in the in the Star Club in the top ten, you'd depending on your shift because there'd be a f- few groups on. You could be finishing at five in the morning, which we often did, and then you'd go into the Scandinavian bar afterwards to have breakfast, and it was a kind of um, unisex to say the least. You, you didn't know which toilet to go into or anything. It was kind of drag queen. Mm-hmm. This, but absolutely lovely people and re- re- really nice. And then at the top ten, that was where I met Elton for the first time. He was with Bluesology, and uh, he was he was on the playing the uh, organ. He what they didn't want him to sing, so he didn't sing. He just played, and uh, he fell in love with our female singer. He was absolutely besotted with her. And uh, we formed a great friendship. And one of the first things we did the first week he had his pay, because Elton was still wearing his grey flannel trousers from school and and blazer. So we went up to this store and just the two of us, and we bought in some modern clothes. And he was absolutely thrilled. It was the first time he had his own clothes, really. and. About, I don't know, about eight years ago, I went to a diamond and tiara party because he holds those every year, doesn't he? And he's standing at the gate with David Furnish, and he's, I hadn't seen him for quite a few years, and he saw me come out the gate and he shouted out, Belotti, you bastard! And we came out, and so I, I grabbed his lapel and I said to uh, David Furnish, I was the first person to trust Elton, and Elton said, Karstadt. He remembered the name of the store. Wow. So it obviously made such an impression on him. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. And yeah. We, we were close for many, many years. Um, I went to a couple of his album recordings in London, stayed with him for a, a week each time to have him recording. And, uh, yeah, so he was a very, very, very close friend for many years. And whilst you're making these records, I mean, obviously you're in studios making them. Do you start to get the feeling that you would like to know more about how the records are made and be more on the other side of the desk, or is that still a long way off? No. Um, when we were in England, um, we, I say we made four or five records, and I saw straight away the guy behind the desk had the best job because. Every time our records failed, life looked dimmer. He didn't care because he's got another band coming in and another band. And I thought, that is the job that I've got to have one day. So when we were in, in Germany, we, we were there for, a, I don't know, perhaps a year and a half or so. And I knew that I wasn't going to get anywhere with the bands. And we came back to England, stopped, and then I made up my mind, because I, I spoke German, and I'd, I'd had A-level German as well, so that had helped. And I left England because someone told me that Hamburg is the place for, for music. And I didn't have any money or anything, but I, I just left and decided, here we go, got to Hamburg, only to find that Hamburg was not the place. There was no work there at all. And so someone said to me, well, 
head for Munich. That's where it's happening. So I headed for Munich, and and it really was happening. Um, there's a place called Schwabing, which is probably a bit like Chelsea, really. It was um, a really hip place. And I met a lot of musos, but I still I had to get a job to, to survive. And it, it's a, a long, boring story, but I ended up unaccountably being a draftsman, although I, I didn't know anything really about being a draftsman. But that, I, I got a job, and I was well paid, and it lasted for about nine months. And my big break in life came because um, I was a, um, a big fan of Leonard Cohen. And I went to the Circus Krona in Munich, where, where all the concerts were, to see Leonard Cohen. And if I hadn't seen Leonard Cohen, I'm not sure you and I would be talking at all at the moment, because when the break came, um, I was up in the gods, obviously, not not of money for a nice seat. And walking around the bottom, I saw a photographer that I recognised. He had bottleneck glasses and long black hair, and it's very easy to remember. And he had originally got about a dozen dates for us in Munich um, um, when we were touring in the in the band. So I I, I rushed down. Um, his name is Booby Highland, and he was a photographer for Bravo magazine. Now, Bravo magazine was one of those magazines, which it doesn't seem possible now, but it, it sold a million copies every week. Which is absolutely phenomenal. And he was their star photographer. Anyway, he, he recognised me straight away and I said, Booby, I'm trying so hard to get into the industry. I, I can't make it my way in. I don't know anyone. He said, OK, well, so give me your number. He said, and if I come across anything, I'll call you. So I went back to my seat and I thought, yeah. I've, I've heard those once before. And a week later, in the middle of the night almost, he phoned me and he said, I'm in Hamburg. Um, I'm talking to a producer here, Giorgio Moroder, who lives in Munich, and um, he'd be very pleased to meet you. So I thought, fantastic. So I phoned, I phoned Giorgio and uh, we made it a date to meet. And Germany was very conservative in those days, and I had really long hair and a big moustache, and I, I thought, you only get one chance at a first impression. I've got to be careful here. So I thought, I'll compromise. I'll shave the moustache off. So when I got to see Georgia, he had really long hair and a big moustache. <laughs> so I don't know if I did the right thing or the wrong thing. Anyway, we hit it off straight away. Um, and. I was ideal for him because he wanted someone to write lyrics as well as as be his assistant. So um, we arranged to start within a couple of weeks, and I handed my notice in at my job. And the very first thing he did on the very first morning when we met was he handed me his briefcase and said, "If you carry this." And when I look back. It was a stupid thing, but I said to him, I'm very sorry, I'll do anything you want, but I can't carry a briefcase. It's just something I can't do. And he said, okay. And we just carried on. And, of course, when I think back, someone else might have said, well, throw your hook, mate. Anyway, we, we got on very well, and um, 
I worked for him as an assistant for the best part of a year. And I um, he worked for a record company at that time. He signed a contract with Ariola Records, and they were opposite where he lived. And I had an office in Ariola for myself, um, working for him. And after about a year, Ariola offered me um, an in-house producer contract. So I told George you know, I was going to do that. I said, but I saw you in her So I said, that's fine. So I did about a year then as in-house producer. And then George said to me one day, I said, I tell you what, let's get together again. We'll be equal partners. And so that's how it all started off. And well, the first thing there I was going to say is that for a lot of people, they hear the name Giorgio Moroder and only think of one thing. But obviously at that time, the music he was making was almost what would be described potentially as German Schlager music. Yeah, he he, he would call himself bubblegum. Bubblegum, yeah. It was very yeah. light pop. Oh, God, yes, yes. But he was hugely successful. Oh, yeah. Um, because he had he lived in Berlin at that time, hmm. and he had his own little studio. So he was actually making the records from his own little studio, and he had one big hit called Looky Looky. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it sold about a million records. You know, he he was in, incredibly successful when I first met him. Yeah. And and when you just when you just said there about becoming in house producer, I mean, presumably that was a bit of a a crash course from going into sort of assisting and you know talk, working with Georgia, but actually to become an in house producer, you learnt the, how to work a studio pretty quickly. I would have thought. Oh yeah, but it's I mean it's it's not that. <laughs> It's not that difficult, really, is no, it? No, but you took you took to it. If if you if you were in and out of studios for a year as a fifteen year old, you would you'd you'd be okay after a year. Yeah. Um, um, no, I I was just incredibly lucky. I mean, that's what the business is about: is being lucky. I was I was lucky that I liked Leonard Cohen. I was lucky that George was a really nice guy. That he was already successful, um, um, that we were working all the time. We were just so busy. Mm. So, although it was a year's working, it was probably two years working because we did ridiculous hours. Um, and and then my year at Ariola, I was I was working as much as I could, um, and I and I and I was writing as much as I could as well. Um, and what, I, what I'd like to say as well is what helped me probably the most in, in my life was playing in a band back then, because uh, they were covers bands back then. So you, you only played hits, hit records, all the latest hits, and you subconsciously um, were s- serving an apprenticeship. You didn't realise it, but you understood how... Re- Records built up, um, why there was a middle eight, what, why there shouldn't be a middle eight. And you were playing to an audience and you saw the audience reaction, how they reacted to certain songs, to certain tempos, all sorts of things. And, 
And I think that's a shame for a lot of people starting out now is that they don't have the opportunity to get up on stage and play all the hits and, and go through that apprenticeship because it's, it's free. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, and as you say, studying it, you're studying arrangement, you're studying, studying song composition. Oh, and it's everything. Yeah. Deconstructing these records that have just been massive and, and yeah. learning all this stuff ready for a time when it's going to be very important for you to be able to do it. Yeah. And, and then suddenly realize some of the biggest hits have the fewest chords, you know, things like that. And it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. So <clears throat> I think I was very lucky to have gone through that period as well. So you're in the studio and you've got an equal partnership with Giorgio. Um, so talk me through the beginnings of how that's working and, and, and what you start doing together. Um, well, <clears throat> I, I, was, I was mainly at the beginning, as I say, writing lyrics for him. And then, then when I got, we started producing together <clears throat> and, and, and I was producing stuff on my own as well. Um, Nothing significant. And then one day um, I, I wrote a song called Denver Dream. And um, I, because of a friend of mine, a publisher in Paris, Daniel Margulet, he, he'd asked me if I had any songs. So I sat down and I wrote this song, Denver Dream, and I needed a vocal on it. And Donna was a backing vocalist um, with a couple of other girls they were pretty regular as a threesome and I just asked if she would sing this as a demo for me and just paid her as a demo singer um, and sent the song off to Paris um, within a few days Daniel phoned me and said he just played it to someone at Delta France a record label and they would like to release it as it is um, is that okay? And I said, well, I have to talk to Donna first. Um, and um, I'd obviously have to record a B-side. He said, oh, yes. But, um, so I, I called up Donna and she came in and I, was, and I explained what had happened. And I said, Would she be willing to um, front that? And she sort of ummed and I said, well, I've, I've been through a couple of bad experiences here, but... Um, and we did know each other fairly well by now. She said, but, but I, you know, I trust you. I said, um, yes, let's do it. She said, but I'd like to change my name from Zoma because she was married to Helmut Zoma, an Austrian guy, um, to Summer. And so that is how she became Donna Summer. And this record then went to France and it, it was released in France, and it was <clears throat> picked up by a, a Dutch company, Bizarre Records, um, who also released it. And Bizarre Records then asked for a follow-up. So then Georgia and I wrote a song together called The Hostage. It's quite dramatic and <laughs> absurd. It, um, Absurd in the in the French meaning of this, uh, and it went to number one in Holland, and then we had a 
another number one. I, I forget the names of these songs now. We had two number ones and then a number six in Holland. Yeah. So she was often off to Holland doing TVs and everything. And so she was quite a name in, in, in Holland. And then um, along came Love to Love You as a single. And um, so we, we re- when that was recorded, um, Dick Leahy of GTO Records took on the record for London, and it came out in, in Holland and France as Love to Love You Baby. But it didn't do anything at all. And so almost a year later, um, a woman called, oh, she, I can't remember her name even now. Anyway, she placed the record for us at Meadham. Um, um, it was for Casablanca Records. This was Bogart who um, picked it up. And he, 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 he thought it was going to be a, a, a big hit in, in the dance clubs. He was, he was convinced. And so he, he had the record pressed as a single. And, and it's an absolutely true story. We, we were in the studio working away, and he phoned from L.A., it was um, it was quite late in the studio. We were in there, and he said, um, "We're at this. We're having a party at my house, and it's it's a bit of an orgy." And he said, and "Everyone's sort of getting it on all over the place in here, and we're playing Love to Love You, but we have to keep putting it on and on and on because it's only a three minute record." He said, "So what I need is I want a full size." Recording like in a guarded Davida from Iron Butterfly. Um, can you do that? And we said, Oh, yeah, of course we can. So now I've got to backtrack and explain why this was easy. Okay. When we did the f- very first recording of Love to Love You Baby, it was with a different drummer. And there's a breakdown where she does all the sighing and moaning, and it all slows down, it doesn't slow down, but it quietens down. But the, but the drummer on it did actually slow down. <laughs> and, and when it was finished, um, the next day, because in the studio sometimes you, you don't hear these things exactly. The next day I, I said, Giorgio, we can't release this like this. We've, the guy's out of time. Um, we've got to get, get um, Keith back in here and Keith Forsey because he wasn't there that, that day. And, and, I, and I thought to myself, how can we make sure that this is in time? And then I thought, well, in all the restaurants that we used to go to in, in Germany, lots of Italian restaurants, you'd have these little trios playing, kind of all... And they had this funny little machine that made all the pseudo-percussion noises. And, and I thought, well, if we got them to play along to that, they're going to stay in time. So I, I called a guy called Lupo from the music shop and said, have you got one of those? He said, oh, yeah, that's, a, that's an Echo. It's called an Echo um, 3000, I think, or something like that. 
So in comes this box with all the buttons and you press cha-cha-cha and all these things. So we chose a certain one and um, laid that down as a track. And then we recorded onto that. And I don't know if this is too much, but I've got to tell you some more about this. This is not too much. This is exactly what I'm hoping for. (laughs) So Love to Love You Baby. a lot of people might argue with me, but I think it was the beginning of disco because yes. on it, it has a four-on-the-floor bass drum. And it, although it seems impossible to say now, before that record, there wasn't four-on-the-floor on any songs except the Crusaders. Um, and I can't remember the name of the track, but, but that, that might come to me. Um, anyway, so when the band used to warm up to songs when we were recording, they always Keith would always play the four on the floor because he just loved this Crusaders thing. And there was um, the Hugh Corporation um, song. Rock the Boat. Rock the Boat. And that had the kind of the disco hi-hat. So Keith combined these two things. And, and and the band used to pl- play a kind of a vamp around all this. So when we used Love to Love You, we took that core element. And, um, and of course, once this track w- was re-recorded at three and a half minutes, and then Bogart said he wanted a 16-minute song, all we had to do was to copy the... Um, echo machine, cha-cha-cha or whatever it was we used, onto the track. And we had 16 minutes of perfect timing. And we could go to any point we wanted to and drop in and out. And it was absolutely fantastic. So um, without that little box, it might have been quite a trial. But so that, that was the first, I believe, time a drum machine was ever used. That's that's amazing, and and just out of interest on that song, on the creation of that song, because obviously that's about the production of that song. But from the initial creation of that song, I wondered where where did it start from? Did it was it a bass line that began it? Because there's it so starts, many. Georgia had the bass line, hmm. um, and we put a demo together, and Donna was. Always very funny in the studio. She she loved impersonating voices. Sometimes she'd sing like Minnie Mouse, and she, mm. she'd do all sorts of things when she's warming up. So, so she went into the studio, and the first thing she started doing, because Jatame had been around, mm-hmm. she started doing all the moaning. Mm. And so we said, absolutely, we've got, to, we've got to have that in there. And so that's how that, that came to be. It came about because... She was joking, and of course, as history goes on, George always loves to say the more he tells the story, the better it gets. Um, Stories get reinvented, but the core element was she was messing around in the studio. Um, And, uh, yeah, and I like to think I've got a pretty good memory because I've, I've never smoked drunk 
taken drugs or anything in my life. So I've always been very lucid. Yeah. Uh, so I, I remember pretty well that. Um, so that that allowed us to do this 16-minute record for Bogart. So Bogart then, he'd signed a three-album deal with us, and uh, Giorgio had done an electronics album. I produced a German rock band, and we'd done the, the Donna album. And when he released the records, the second week he phoned up, he said, the album's going to be the rock band, Schloss. He said, the reaction's fantastic. But within two weeks, it was Donna because he got it into a, a, a couple of clubs and the clubs were going crazy. So the next thing Bogart did, and this is absolutely true, he organised a party in New York uh, to launch the record. He His favourite cake maker, so both Neil Bogart was in Los Angeles, but his favourite cake maker was in Los um, San Francisco. So he had this cake made in San Francisco. He had it flown first class in a first class seat down to LA. He had a mind to take it in a first class seat, obviously with cameras and things, so that people knew what was going because he was so flamboyant. And at in New York, he had a, an ambulance waiting with a red light, <laughs> and he went straight to the club, the ambulance blaring away, opened the doors, and out came the cake. And the cake was a replica of the, of the cover's reverse side of Donna lying there in a negligee. And it was taken in, and that was how the album was launched. And it just became so huge as a, as an, a, a dance record. Um, mm. Bogart. It really was a genius. I mean, he was, he came from the bubblegum era as well, funnily enough. Um, he was hugely successful, but he could spend money like there's no tomorrow. Um, they always had this little saying about him. He bought out one of his first records for Casablanca was a comedian, and they, they said it shipped gold and returned platinum. Because um, he just he could spend money and... And I think if we'd been with Donna with any other record company, I, I'm pretty certain that we wouldn't have had the success because he just knew how to work the machine. It's mm. man. Amazing. And I think the other thing about, I mean, even starting with The Hostage, but then moving on to Love to Love You, it, the signature orchestration was very, very prominent from the beginning. Um, I think it was, was it Michael Thatcher that orchestrated? Yeah, Mike Thatcher. He, he was an American living in Munich. Yeah. And when did that, was that one of the fight, last things to go on it, the orchestration or? Yes, always the last. Yeah. 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 And it was, but it was just perfect. And again, really great, added to the silkiness of the song, but also some lovely little brass hooks. It wasn't, wasn't overdone. Um, yeah. Was that something that, would you choose an arranger and bring them in, or were they people you knew, or how did it usually there, work? There were pe pe people we knew, Mandy. Um, another one who did a lot for us was Tor Balderson. Yes. He was from Iceland. I mean, Munich was incredible. It was just so many nations down yeah. there. Um, as I say, Donna was obviously American, and there were at least two other girls there in Munich who were 
I always called them hair refugees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'd been in the hair musical. Um, hair brought over so many musicians to Europe, Marsha Hunt, um, all sorts of things. Um, and, yeah, there, was so, so there, were, there were lots of talented musicians there. Yeah. And, of course, it's difficult for people these days to remember the fact that um, albums then had a limited time just because of what you could fit on a vinyl. So the the original album, the uh, Love to Love You Baby, it was six tracks of which one was a reprise. So Love to Love You Baby was one side and then there was another four tracks. Yes, and of course the others, we, you know, to say the least, we rushed those <laughs> to get, because Bogart wanted the album immediately. So, we, yeah. um, but, we were very fast. We always worked very fast, um, George and I, um, in a very civilised way. We, um, by the time we, after Love to Love You, from then on, we only ever worked from 10 in the morning till 6 in the evening and then go to the restaurant because that was the life we led. Um, it was incredibly civilised. Um, there was... No midnight shifts going on then. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I think that's a really good thing, actually. I'm, I'm someone that enjoys doing that as well. Um, once the, obviously off the back of the success of that, there was an instant, okay, we need to make another record, which ended up being Love Trilogy. Um, I've read things about you being very inspired by by reading books and reading novels, and, and you have over a lot of your songs, um, you're, you're a storyteller. I always find, you know, lyrically, you're a really good storyteller and you like that. So was the, was, did Love Trilogy come to you as an idea for a fully formed piece? Um, yes. I, yeah. Um, it's true that I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I still read all the time now, but when I was living in Munich, <clears throat> there was the English bookshop. And in that bookshop, they had a whole shelf full of penguin classics. Um, with a grey spine. I've, I've still got my set from back then. And I came across Mervyn Peake's Love, uh, <laughs> Love Trilogy, <laughs> the Gormenghast Trilogy. Yeah. And um, I, which I fell in love with that book. I fell in love with Mervyn Peake and I've ended up with a huge collection of his paintings and works and everything. Um, so the idea of Love Trilogy was... And I thought to write three songs and and then the fourth song is a combination of all those songs together. So I wrote a lyric for Try Me and then a, a, a lyric for I Know and then a lyric for We Can Make It and a final lyric for Try Me, I Know We Can Make It. And Georgia put the music t- together and then I put the lyrics. So that became Love Trilogy. Then the next album, <clears throat> I, I'd been reading the Alexandria Quartet. Um, I mean, this is synchronicity. It was just so lucky with these things. But um, it gave me the idea for Four Seasons of Love. So that was when we got the double album, um, a slight, uh, um, so these, uh, sorry, two, two, two songs each side. Um, so that was another concept. And, and because we're in, into the concept, 
I think that's how, without me reading, we, we might not have come to um, I Feel Love because I just read Anthony Pohl's Dance to the Music of Time, which is 12 novels. Mm. And that gave me the idea of, at the original time, of 12 songs, one going from the 50s and then into the Shirelles and Tamla and Soul and da -da -da -da, pop rock, and then into the future, the song for the future. Um, so that's what we did. And I Feel Love was obviously the last track. And we got in um, the, the, the big moog, mo the 3P. Um, I think P stands for pieces because it was three big suitcases-sized things um, with a 61-note keyboard and um, an arpeggiator. And it came with um, an operator, and his name was Robbie Vadel. And I've tried to make him as famous as I can because I'll mention him everywhere because he, it's not a pun, he's instrumental in making that song what it is. Um, because we recorded the first track, um, and then he said, um, So, um, do, do you want to sync to this for the next track? And we both looked at each other and said, what does that mean? He said, well, I've already put a, a signal down onto tape. He said, um, so when, when you play the next track, it's going to lock into it. I said, what? He said, yeah, yeah. He said, he said I've just figured this out. He said, Moog doesn't know about it yet. I went, oh, okay. So we tried it, and it just locked in absolutely solid, and it was just amazing. And, of course, when, when we asked for the bass sound, you know, Robbie Vedel came up and he got this bass sound, which was phenomenal. I mean, the, the only non-synth on there, we've got Keith's um, bass, bass drum on there. Um, otherwise, everything is the move. And when it was pretty much finished, it was quite slow. Um, I think it, it felt slow. I think it's about 120 BPM. It's around that. And so Coppers and I, the engineer, um, we've been over the years doubling up instruments quite a bit um, by, by, um, through, through the tape or even through the lexicon um, reverb. So I said... We, because this is the last song and we want to go off on a high, we need to get it going a bit. So, um, so we doubled the bass and that got the did 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 and um, And then Donna came in and Donna as always, well, there's a story with I Feel Love as well. I have, I have to, a quick one. <laughs> I was, Take your time. We're here. <laughs> I, I was in LA and... Um, uh, Georgia said, Donna's just called him because she, 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 she'd heard, heard the backing track. She said she'd, she'd love to write the lyric with you on that. So I said, okay. So I went down to her house that night. She answered the door with a phone in her hand and she said, uh, 
I'm just on the phone to New York. She says, come in. Coffee's um, in the machine. Help yourself. So I went in, sat there. And almost an hour passed, and she came down. She said, um, I'm still on the phone. She said, um, go ahead, start it. So I thought, as you know, there's not, not a lot of lyric there. But <laughs> so I started writing it. And, um, and then she came down again. She said, I'm really, really sorry. Anyway, about 11.30, because I, I was there for eight, she came down and she said, I'm ever so sorry about that. She said, I, I said, I've finished it. She, I said, here it is. She, she looked at it. She, she didn't really look at it, if you know what I mean. She said, oh, it's fine. Great. Thanks. I said, you, why are you so distracted then? She said, well, I've been on, on the phone to my, um, oh, God, what do they call these people who do star signs? Oh, <laughs> um, astrologist. Yeah, astrologist. So I've been on the phone to my astro- astrologist in New York. She said, because I've just met a new guy. And she, she was with a painter at that time called Peter Muldorfer, the German. And she says, but she's fallen in love with Bruce Sudano, um, who was her husband after that. She said, and, and I've, we've had to check everything out to be absolutely certain that he's the guy for me. And it turns out he is the man. So I'm dumping Peter tomorrow, and Bruce and I are going to be an item. So, so, that, so that was, um, I feel, love the writing. So then we recorded it back in Munich. And Donna, as I always say, always came in and she did funny voices or, or adaptive voices. She, she was completely intuitive. And, and I always like to say she was intuitive, like an alchemist who, who could turn you know, anything into gold. You know, she, she, she was just like that. She came in. And she sang it in head voice straight away. It wasn't written for head voice. It was just written as a regular voice. But as soon as she sang it in head voice, the juxtaposition of that gentle voice in this nasty machine below it, it was just magical. And, uh, and when the album was finished, and it's, this is really true, we had no idea that it was going to be a single or anything. We just it was just part of the album, you know. It was, so we sent it to, to New York, and to LA, and Bogart listened to it, and he said, uh, I, I, I'm going to put I Feel Love into the clubs, he said, but it needs three edits, he said. And he recommended three edits, which were really good. I mean, he was a proper record man, Bogart. And um, so that's how I Feel Love came about. It wasn't a... A massive hit at all. It's, it's, it really was a slow burner over the years, and over the years it just seems just to grow and grow. And I, it's, it's absolutely astounding. Um, and so much of it has got to do with Robbie Vader because of that sound. It's hard to make better. You know, I've, I've heard so many versions of that bass and. I, th- I still think Vader has got the best bass sound on it. It's also hard to replicate as well because no one can really tell what's going. I mean, you th- you think it's do you think you know what it's doing, but actually, it's because it's oscillating all the time. You never can yeah. quite tell what it's doing with the octaves. Yeah. So um, yeah, that that is extraordinary. I just wanted to just um, 
briefly just go back to uh, just on the the previous album. I wondered what your reaction was when the suggestion came to do the disco version of Could It Be Magic? Could it be that that wasn't our suggestion? That was um, Bogart's suggestion. Um, because it was a cha- it was a challenge to take about you know, but it was something that you 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 know you did after and and you've and you obviously more famous you know even more famously with MacArthur. But I just wondered how that um, how you approached that because obviously the end result was extraordinary. Yeah, um, I think I think the the arranger was Greg Matheson. I can't remember. Right. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, no, it, it was a perfect song for a disco because you had that wonderful slow intro and it's a fantastic Manilo melody. Mm. Um, it's brilliant. Um, and I think without knowing it, it was the greatest dress rehearsal for the MacArthur part that we could mm. have ever wanted. Um, yeah. Yeah. And have and just again, it was such a treat to be, I imagine, to be sat in a, control room with her on the other side delivering a, a vocal like that because it's oh, just effortless oh yeah it's i mean w- w- one of the greatest things for me is always just being in in the room when you when you've got all these musicians together um and you start off with with this idea and you play them the demo and then one of the guys says what if I do this bit with the bass in that part? Or, or what, a, what about a kind of um, the guitarist is this and the drums? And suddenly it moulds in a slightly different direction and it's so much better than what you had imagined. And then you've got this complete backing track and then this vocalist comes in and you think, God, she, she, she can make any song good. It doesn't matter what, what you write. It just sounds fantastic when she sings it. Yeah, uh, and what I always think about Donna is there are so many great singers out there, brilliant singers, and there always will be. But there aren't that many singers, in my humble opinion, with tone. That with this tone, there's a tone of voice that is dished out to the lucky few, and and she, she was one of them. Um, Michael McDonald has one of these terms. Um, there, 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 are, there are a few people. Um, Whitney. Um, and, and Donna had such a range because um, she had, had done a bit of opera as well. Um, I mean, she, she could have been in a jazz band. She could have been anywhere. She was, uh, yeah, so, so fantastic. So as you say, uh, when you're sitting in the control room and then suddenly she just bursts out. And I've said this many times, she really was a one-take wonder. Donna came in the studio, she loved to chat, and she would chat and chat and chat and chat. And then she'd look at her watch and said, come on, we got to go, got to go. Because she usually just do the one song. And she'd just sing it in one, and, and she was gone. And the only time I ever saw her struggle to hit a note where we had to do it a couple of times was the high note in MacArthur Park. Mm. Otherwise, she just... And I say she, she, she wore the coat for the song each time. She just knew how to approach it. 
Yeah, and I think that's exactly it. It's the timbre, it's the tone and the believability. I'm a huge fan of believability with singers. Yeah. Just really meaning it, just immediately. And she was a lovely, lovely person, Hmm. really. I mean, all the years that we worked together, we never, ever had a disagreement about anything, except for God, perhaps. Yeah. Um, because Donna was very religious, George was agnostic, I'm an atheist, and she used to try and convert us, but it never worked. Um, but um, George and I never had any words together either. Um, we, it was a really wonderful, harmonic, fabulous friendship we had all those years together. Absolutely. And I, I love what you said about. Um about that, I, the idea of behind I remember yesterday of starting in the past and ending in the future because I remember the first time I heard Love's Unkind and it was it was like a, a 60s disco, you know, and it's listening to the album as a, as a piece and, and, and knowing that, it just makes so much more sense because obviously you open with the big Hollywood. Yeah, because one of the unfortunate things you say, I wanted to call it a dance to the music of time. Yeah. No one liked that title, right. and that's why it ended up, I remember yesterday. Yeah. Um, but it, it took away the concept, <laughs> the yeah. title, but it still did well. So. It still did well. And, of course, again, concept album, the next one, I'm Once Upon a Time, very much a, a concept album. Yes. As a, as, as a now, song. That, wasn't, that wasn't our concept. That was the concept of um, her manager, her agent, and Donna, I think that um, Susan Maneo mm-hmm. um, and Bogart's wife and, and Donna, they, they came up with the idea that she wanted to do a fairy tale story. Mm-hmm. So, um, but le- left it to us to come up with the whole, whole thing. Um, so that definitely wasn't our co- concept, but um, it, it, was a, it was a good idea. A great idea, yeah. Yeah, and also it has, um, for me, when we were just talking about her vocals, um, and you said obviously she can do anything, it has, for me, one of the best vocals she's ever done on on anything, which was on a song that possibly people might not know, but I thought her vocal on A Man Like You was it was truly oh, yeah. incredible. It yeah. almost had felt like a kind of Aretha in places. Yes, yeah, I yeah. Hadn't, I remember not having heard her, you know, I knew she could sing anything, but there was something about, the vocal on that 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 felt yeah, yeah. really really good. Plus, of course, it has. I mean, there's so many songs of yours that I I adore. But there's if I have to have a kind of top three, then I love you is absolutely in it. Oh because... well, yeah, that, that 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 was the I think the main single from the album. Yeah, yeah. But just the the way that it builds. I mean, you were talking earlier about you know when you were playing um, in the bands and stuff and learning about song structure and like that. The whole build from to, to the climax of that chorus is just glorious. Yeah. Was that, was, do you remember, was that one of the f- first songs that, that came for that album or was it all just like a long pri- writing process? I think it was just a long writing process. Everything happened so fast. There was, yeah. there was never any um, agony over writing. It, um, I mean, you see it with lots of artists. You get this period 
um, the purple period or whatever you want to call it, where it's just everything goes right yeah, with ease. Um, and unfortunately, it only lasts a few years. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I know, but if you look at what you crammed in. Um, yeah. But no, I, I think it's interesting. And I, and I think also... Just so, and again, you did it again on 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 the next one when you when you get to Bad Girls. There's, you're not you start off with her writing albums, and then you very quickly are writing double albums. It becomes the 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 norm that it's going to yes. be a double album because yeah. it, you need to find the stuff on it. So I mean, again with with the with the Bad Girls album, um, you've started to bring in. There's a few other people. It's the first time I think Harold Fultemeyer's. Um, involved in the team was he part of the team before then? Um, he'd he'd played played with us quite a few times mm. on, on certain things, but that was probably the first time. What, what actually happened was <clears throat> for bad girls. As we Bogart would just say to us, "He needs an album," and so money was never an object. With Bogart, I mean, he used to <laughs> put us up. At, I mean, Georgia lived actually lived over there, but um, he would put coppers and myself up at the um, Beverly Hills with a bungalow each. You know, and, you know, you don't usually give a bungalow at the Beverly Hills to an engineer. You know, it's, it's <laughs> but, <laughs> and pr- provide us all with the, the latest cars and. Money was no object, and for bad girls, he rented a studio, the Rush Studio, for a month for writing. Um, so we, Donna wrote with Bruce and, and the other guys. They they mo- wrote most of theirs at home. They didn't actually come in. So it was just Giorgio, myself, Keith, and Harold were in there. Hmm. So this is another true story how things just happened. Giorgio is on on the grand piano in in the studio writing away and had an engineer working behind there recording anything that he might do. Keith and Harrow were playing, I think it was called Space Invaders, Mm. uh, in, in, in the sort of the kitchen come dining room area. And and I was just sitting on a couch, pen in hand and writing and stuff. And um, suddenly, and, and there was a there's a piano there, uh, an upright piano with a couple of keys missing and uh, out totally out of tune. And suddenly, I, I had hot stuff going around in my head. I had the whole chorus, and and, and I said, "Guys, over to the piano. I've got, I've got a chorus." And so we went over to the piano. And I started seeing hot stuff, and Harold was there straight away. And, and probably within 20 minutes, half an hour, we, we, we had the whole song ready, not the lyrics, because I, I wrote, uh, wrote those later in the evening. But it was just the absurdity that there's a big, grand, wonderful piano in the other room, but we're in this room with this out-of-tune piano, and we've written the song Hot Stuff. And... Um, so that, that night I went home and I went back to the hotel and I wrote, I wrote the lyrics. And we had a contractor um, called Trevor Veach who would find all the musicians for us. And he's in that song because 
when we used to ask him to, to do things, there was a phone on the wall in the studio with a coily, curly um, lead and cable. And he would walk up and down the room and this cable would stretch and stretch to its absolute limit. And I thought it was going to... So that's how it came to be almost running the phone off the wall because of, of him. Wow, okay. Anyway, when we got the backing track done, because um, we'd done most of our recordings still in Europe, really, um, and with lots of overdubs in, in the States. But, so I said, I, I need a guitarist for tomorrow um, for a solo. He said, oh, okay, so uh, who's your favourite guitarist then? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, who's your favourite guitarist? He said, we've got everyone in town here. I said, Scum Baxter. I said, Steely Dan. I said, the Doobie Brothers. He said, just a second. He went over to the phone and, and he, he nodded to me. He said, what time? Tomorrow. I said, 10 o'clock. He said, okay. And then I thought, my hero's coming tomorrow. Anyway, the next day at 10 o'clock, I get there, and he's there, punctual, with all that long hair and the moustache and the tightest jeans that looked like they were painted on. And he was really friendly and nice and the, the, the real laid-back L.A. dude. And um, so he, he got on the bar stool and he sat back and he, he got his strap there and he's, he said, um, so uh, let me hear the track, man. So, it's, so he, he heard it through. He said, just once more. He said, okay, we're ready. And he played that damn solo that we hear straight off. And uh, oh, he said, he said um, it's something like that. I said, no, no, that, that. We'll have that. He said, oh, okay, great. He said, um, do you want me to play some rhythm on that? I thought, my God is asking me if he can play some rhythm. I said, yes, please. So he played some rhythm on it. And um, when he finished, he said, uh, anything else? I said, no, because we we'd only just started writing with this. All he said, no, um, I, I don't have anything else. He said, okay, is, um, is it all right if I pop around tomorrow morning? I said, no, we won't have anything ready. He said, no, 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 just to hang out. I thought, oh, my God, he wants to hang out with me. Oh, my God. And he came for about a week <laughs> every day. He was fantastic and incredibly intelligent. And, uh, but that, that suddenly, that solo suddenly changed the whole direction of, the, uh, of our thinking um, while we're doing that album. Um, everything got sort of not, not rockier, but a, a different edge, a dis disco kind of disappeared a bit from it. Um, you hear Bad Girls is quite different. And, um, um, yeah, so, so that, that, that was pretty fantastic. Because it's interesting, isn't it? It's like there's so many hooks that I think just in, in general, there's hooks on top of hooks on top of hooks. And as you say, yeah. the guitar, guitar solo is another one because you, it's, it's kind of singable. Like you can, you, it's an iconic guitar solo. Oh, I've been asked before, you know, to explain, because it is sales wise, it's our, our most successful record. Yes. Um, um, and I said, I think the only thing I can offer is that it's an eight bar intro, an eight bar verse, 
an eight-bar chorus, an eight-bar instrumental, and, eight, and the, the only 16 bars is the guitar solo. So the transitions are so fast, mm. um, and and it and it just all happens and flows really fast. So I think it's just kind of lucky. It's like a fast-flowing river somehow. Mm. Um, you, I mean, you can't explain why it's still why, why it's no. it. But, uh, but no, anyway, no. Bogart heard the album and it was all mixed up, mixed and ready to go. And he's, he said straight away, Hot Stuff is going to be the first single release. And, and I just remember the record, it just came out and I was driving down um, uh, Rodeo, the Rodeo, at the top down, and suddenly the guy on the radio said, and here's this week's new number one, and hot stuff came on. And and I was I was in the right, you know, all the palm trees were going by and the record was on. <laughs> it was probably a, a highlight of my career. I thought, oh, wow. Amazing. And, of course, Donna sung it so fantastic. She just, she just jumped on it. And I don't think she thought about the lyric because the lyric was quite racy, and she was – Seriously religious, Donna. She didn't like sentiment. And there was one funny thing in this lyric that I wrote. When when I demoed it, I was just messing around and I said, I sang, How's about some hot stuff? And and she actually went in the studio and she sang, How's about some hot stuff? And I was about to say to her, I was only joking. But and I thought, no, no, I'll leave it. <laughs> Still there. Yeah. Good. Yeah, well, good, good plan. But, but, but she she loved it from the moment she heard it. So that was great. Yeah. And, and, and she dimmed all the lights, which was fantastic. Yeah, which was just her, right? That's her song. Yeah. 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 Which and, is... and, and we had the pleasure with that album. It was the first time a single and a, an album had gone to number one straight away. And it's the first time someone had had a, a number one album a number one single and a number three single at the same time. Mm. So the album was fantastic, uh, yeah. It, and it was, it, and there was, and there wasn't a concept. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And and you mentioned it earlier. I mean, I know around this time was um, it was about. I think it was around this time, not necessarily on this album, that um, that, that the MacArthur Park thing came up um oh i can tell you i can tell I you mean, i mean but listen it is and i know you're not gonna like you're not gonna take compliments but undeniably is the the the, the suite is the the finest disco dance record that's ever been made in the history of everything so oh, i'm more than happy for you to tell me anything you want about it oh, well the story of, of that is <clears throat> we've done live and more um <clears throat> and when we finished it, Bogart said, he was always intuitive about things. He said, I want another cover record. Um, so we need to think of them. So, okay, so, so he organised a brainstorming on a Sunday afternoon at Westlake Studios. So there was Georgia, myself, Keith, Harold, um, and a lot of record company people from Bogart, all sitting there, engineers, everything, just tossing ideas around for songs. What could we do? This 
naming that and you'd hear everyone go, yeah, yeah, and then someone would go, oh, but, and then no, no. And we'd come to the, almost the end, and we were probably despairing a bit, and just about to pack up. And at the very beginning, I thought of mentioning MacArthur Park, but I was always embarrassed about MacArthur Park because um, I loved um, Harris, Harris's... Um, Richard Harris, yeah. Richard Harris's version. I absolutely loved it. Mm. But people used to laugh at me when I said it because they thought it was kind of a bit fade. But I, I think thought it was fantastic. And it was my favourite song, absolute favourite song. I, I love the mystique of it, the mysteriousness of everything about it. And, um, and I always wanted to see MacArthur Park, um, which was quite disappointing when I did see it. Um, but... So I, I, I wanted to mention it, but I thought they'd all laugh at me. I really did. So as, it, as we finished it, I said, what about MacArthur Park? And it all went quiet, and Bogart looked at me, and he went, MacArthur Park. And he pointed to the table and said, go out and get the record. Because this has been happening all afternoon, people going out to get the record, because there was no Spotify to just listen to it. So the guy came back played it and Bogart started jumping around he said that's it that's it so Greg Matheson was there so that night Matheson wrote out the whole song and it was all joined on paper it was a huge piece of scroll and the next day we were doing the backing track and and the next day we did all the vocals and um And it was perfect because it had that slow beginning again. It was just coincidental that it had that. And it, and it was the perfect record, as you said, to, to do a disco song. And it just, it was just fantastic that we happened to be sitting there that afternoon and that my favourite song in the world, everyone liked. And the postscript to this story is many years later, Jimmy Webb was appearing not far from here in, I think, Crawley at the Town Hall or something like that. And I thought, I've got to go and see him because I still think Webb is one of the greatest songwriters ever. absolutely adore him. And when I got there, it was a, a very high stage, very weird place, and there it seemed to be just full of men. I didn't see any women in long coats and things. It looked like a working man's club. It's a really weird place. Anyway, Jimmy Webb was up on stage and he, he was magnificent on his own with the piano and played everything and really good. And he was he was doing a book signing because he had a, it was a book launch. And I'd already had the book and read it. <coughs> but I queued up just to say hello. And he's, he's writing away, and then it's my turn. He, he glanced up at me, and I said, Hi, Jimmy. Um, my name's Pete Pelosi. Um, uh, I recorded MacArthur Park um, with Donna. And he looked up at me and went, mm. And he looked down again, and I was dismissed. <laughs> so, so, so I walked off, and, and uh, it was okay because I still think he's the greatest person ever, but. Um, I, I did 
I do know that he didn't like the version when it came out. <laughs> wow. But, but it was his only number one ever. And I thought, that must ameliorate something. <laughs> so never meet your heroes. No. And, and at what stage did it turn from being just a great, an incredible disco cover of MacArthur Park to being a suite of songs based around it? Yeah, because we had we had to fill up a whole side. That that was that that was the whole thing, and um, so that's why we had these extra two songs. And Joey Esposito, um, he's such a fantastic singer. And when when he duets with Donna, I remember in the studio I got goosebumps, goose pimples. Um, um, no, they were just the natural kind of songs to to. to stick on to it sort of thing but um, it does feel like a it, it doesn't feel like a chopped together thing no, it does no. feel like an actual piece no no I, I, I think just because the spirit was there um, I mean it's like the whole but Bad Girls album they're, they're disparate songs but somehow they all come together I think it's just using the same musicians and all sorts of things like that I don't know Plus, again, orchestration, I guess, you know. Orchestration, that, absolutely. That, that beautiful. Um, I mean, I mean Math- Matheson is brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and that's obviously someone, yeah, someone, again, you used quite quite a bit. And again, <laughs> did you find as a producer when you were working with the Rangers, was it very much you just picked someone and said, go and, like, do your thing? And or was there a strict idea well, of what they wanted? <laughs> Nearly every arranger, um, all they, I'm going to say, well, they, they were working from a backing track. There was a, yeah. The track was already, so they worked from that. They didn't arrange the song. No, they just added the orchestration to yes, what you'd yes. already done. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but you gave them a bit of but, free reign to... Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, and generally, well, always, I think. You, I mean, if you've got these great musicians, you know, the, the records were so good. I mean, everything improves every time a, a great musician adds something. I mean, you know, yeah, you've got mm. Earth, Wind and Fire, you've got all, all their brass section, and you think, oh, my God. And they're, they're all sitting around a bowl of Coke and on the edges of their seats, and they're just blasting away, and you kind of – you can't believe that so much air can come out through these instruments, you know, um, Paulino de Costa we used to get him for percussion, mm. and he would come with this big removal van, and you couldn't name any bit of percussion that he didn't have in the van, you know. Um, and my experience is, I don't really think I've met any musicians that I don't like. Mm. There's something about musicians; they're just such nice people. Mm. You know, obviously, they're doing what they love. And and they give they give more than you ask for, I think. They do. And I love what you said there as well about actually having I know it's where we are today, there's a lot of people that, you know, just do what they do on their own. And we, you know, we can as players and instrument players of instruments and producers, we can do lots of things ourselves. But there is definitely a magic that comes when each additional human is added to the mix. Oh, absolutely. And, and the other thing that I probably miss from that more than anything else is laughter because I think we spent most of our lives 
laughing our way through the productions. Um, yeah. Some really funny guys, Keith Forsey and Coppers, the engineer, absolutely hilarious. You know, I mean, I used to be wrestling on the floor with Coppers, you know, and then not being able to work for a while because we're all laughing too much. You know, there was just so much joy as well, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Did you ever, I know you said that obviously you're very much a, a kind of backroom person and you do that. Did did you ever get to any of the big discos like 54 or anything to actually see audience reacting to your songs? Yeah, the only, um, I've only been to do two discos. Um, one was Club 54, George and I went. Um, it was incredible to go in there because I always remember coming in and seeing the back wall. It was just speakers. It was a huge back wall with 12-inch speakers plastered all the way across it. And all, all the waiters in kind of Greek togas and um, lying around. And uh, But <clears throat> like a lot of musicians, Georgia and I can't dance, so we weren't there for the dancing. And um, we weren't there for long. We went off to a restaurant after that. And then I went to a disco with now she Bob Clear Mountain's wife, um, Beth, Betty Bennett, she was then. She, she wanted to show me an LA disco because I never went to clubs and she insisted. So she took me down there and I, I, I did learn something that night that nothing to do with our music, but everyone was dancing and really enjoying themselves and Thriller came on. And I saw that the room explode. Like, it was just... You suddenly saw the difference between uh, records and the record. It just, the room went bonkers. And I thought, well, that's it. But then the next record came on and it went even higher. And it was the Vegemite sandwich song, the um, oh, men at work. Living in a Land Down Under. Yeah, Men at Work. I did it. Every, there's a lot of words in that song. Everyone knew all the words and the room erupted. Well, I... I would not have expected no, that. No. <laughs> it's re- that's why I remember the story. It's just so fantastic. I, I, that is a brave DJ that goes from Thriller to Down yeah, Under. I know. Yeah. <laughs> that, is quite, that is quite something. But yes, I mean, yeah, Thriller was, yeah. And obviously, I mean, I know Rod um, and Quincy worked with Donna after, later on. Um, but I imagine that Rod, as a songwriter, is someone that you've, you have a lot of time for. Oh God, yeah, Quin- Quincy. Uh, um, I, I, I knew him a little bit. Well, because I, I was working in Studio B at Westlake, and he was in A with mm. with Thriller doing Thriller. So we met up a few times. I met Michael, um, but he had a very bad experience with Donna. He didn't. He didn't gel. Um, mm. But that happens, and I and I and I was. Definitely forgive Donna because it was her first time her being in charge. You know, because she 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 sang everything we offered. We never had a song over. And, and we there's there's nothing in the cupboard that we didn't release. If we had an album to make, we just wrote an album. Donna never ever questioned a song, she just sang them. Um and I think Bad Girls was her first chance of being herself and that's why dim all the lights is so 
fantastic. Um, and I think that taught her that she, you know, she she had a lot more talent than than she realised, perhaps. So when she got to work with Quincy, I think she wanted to put her stamp on it a lot more and be in charge. Um, and of course, Quincy is kind of a a kind of a man who's done everything, knows everything, and probably didn't like some of the things she did because it wasn't the biggest album ever. Mm. Um, and he told me lots of stories that I, I won't pass on, but he he wasn't very happy with um what's the song where everyone's singing on there um um state of independence state of independence he he went out of his way to get all his friends on that and it took him a lot of work to get them all together and everything and uh, mm. it kind of they fell out over that somehow and uh, and then to, I don't know what happened to Donna I don't understand why she never after. Geffen got rid of us. I don't understand why she didn't do more film themes um, because she, if anyone could sing a, a Bond track mm. or whatever, um, and I don't understand, she was great f- friends with, oh God, it's, it's another songwriter who did wit- work with Whitney a lot. Um, David Foster? Yeah, David Foster. They were great friends. Now, if any man could offer her mm. a hit song or producer, they were such good friends. I thought, why didn't she work with David Foster then? You know, um, she she worked with so many different producers, but I would have thought she'd have had her choice of any producer, really. Yeah, definitely. And I, and actually, I wondered, obviously, because there was two two more albums that we haven't spoke about. I. I Wondered with the Wanderer. The Wanderer felt like a definite um, musical change, and I wondered if that was uh, in any way a reaction to the whole disco socks movement that happened to, to change the sound. Yeah, D- D- disco socks. Yeah, because I remember being in New York for the first time where I saw it graffiti, mm. and as soon as I saw that, I knew it was the end of disco. Certainly, um, it, that really was the writing on the wall. You know. Um, yeah, the the Wanderer. It's funny they they've just done a um, a re-release of that, and so many people have been saying to me it's their favourite album. Um, it's it's kind of an album that I always kind of forget about, mm. no, not consciously, but it's um and, and when I went back to it again recently, I, th- I thought oh it's, it's a lot better than I remember it. Mm. Um, um, it, it didn't have a lot of hits on it, um, and it, it was probably the beginning of our demise because then we had the the double album for Geffen, and God knows why Geffen signed Donna. He hated disco, um, <laughs> and when we finished the album um, and sent it in, we didn't hear anything for a few days, and I, I just said to the guys, "That's it." <laughs> it's over, <laughs> and that was that was that was I'm a Rainbow, which of, which obviously eventually did come out. I mean, were you were you happy with it? You were happy? With it? Was it in a finished album that you were happy with? So you were happy when it did actually see the light of day? 
Um, I have to say, every album we ever did, we never run out and said, we're pretty fantastic, aren't we great? We just, I, th I think we were not, not excitable people, really. Mm. Um, so when the end came, I was, I was quite okay with it. Um, I thought we'd had a, a good run, um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the very few people stayed with their, their producers for that long. So, <laughs> yeah. So I've got nothing to complain about. And, uh, th the last time I saw Donna, just just before about two months before she died. She said, oh, please come back over and write with me again. So, you know, we were still great friends to the very end. Wonderful. That's really good to hear. Um, I just want to touch briefly on some other bits and pieces that you have sure. that you worked on um, outside of Donna. Obviously, you did make, you did reunite with Elton for his disco album. Um, probably the only Elton album that he didn't write anything on, right? Well, that was quite seriously. That was the, the that was exactly at the time when Disco Socks was on the wall, mm. <laughs> and and I was in London at, um, at um, John Reed's house. He was having a party there, yeah, um, in a house that had about nine stories, I think. And every step you went up, there was a an original Lowry on the wall. <laughs> um, and John came up to me and said, Elton wants to make a record with you, um, but he doesn't want to have anything to do with the writing. He wants to do a disco record. And, and I, I questioned him. I said, are you sure? He said, absolutely. He said, that's what he really wants. And so I, I, I did it, and it was it's, – it's not a great album, I know. <laughs> um, I, I know that he he still really loves Victim of Love. Mm. Um, he put that in, in in the background of his film as well. Um, but um, it was it was the end of the disco, and it was just wrong timing. It was yeah. Um, hey, uh, yeah. listen, I've 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 recorded quite a few. Um, Albums that have bombed. <laughs> well, let's go on to something that that absolutely I feel is is as up there as um, as many of the Donna songs, which is um, giving up, giving in for the three degrees. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. I mean, did I'm imagining that they just wanted the guy that does Donna Summer, and they said we want one of those, and you wrote it for them, or was it written already? How does that song come? No, about? no, it's written for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, yeah, that's. That's still quite a popular song. That is, yeah. It's uh, just uh, the drama of it, and just it's it's relentless, and it's actually a tough song to sing. Actually, yeah, <laughs> I've seen people try and cover it, and it, it's not oh, for the faint-hearted. They're such nice girls. God, we I remember we were in a, a restaurant in Munich with the Three Degrees having dinner, and their manager, yeah, I don't know what his name is now. I've got no idea. All around, El Sula was the restaurant, I remember, and we're sitting there, and the manager was a really nice guy, really charming guy. 
Mm. And uh, having a great conversation. And, and he went off to the loo and we, we're all talking away. And, and then this monster returned. He was so horrible. God knows what he took, but it, he was really nasty. And later I found out he was arrested that night for threatening someone in a phone booth with a knife. God. <laughs> so, so they obviously had the wrong manager. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's an- and, and what I love about giving up, giving in, because I've I've got two spurious connections with Prince Charles, okay. and that's his favourite song in in the dance world. And then there's that picture of him um, dancing to uh, Hot Stuff. Yeah, the full Monty. He does the sketch of the full Monty. <laughs> so that, that's as close to royalty as I'm. That's, that's a good one. And I know you also worked with um, a couple of, of, of acts that I really, really love, but aren't wildly well known. Uh, France Jolie was um, a couple of songs oh, yeah, there. Yes. And Patsy Gallant, who obviously had that one big hit, but actually some great oh. records. She made some yeah, great yeah, records. Patsy Gallant. She, yeah. she was... Um, she, she was Canadian, was she as well? Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh and God! I, See, yeah. you've, you've mentioned records I've forgotten about. There's also um, the um, your, your song "To Turn the Stone" um, was recorded by Frida from ABBA. Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. Which was that's, I know it was recorded by other people as well, but that is yeah. the pinnacle version, I think. Yeah, that's that's the song that's. How can I put it without sounding horrible? Um, a song that I'm very happy with the lyric. Yeah. On that. That's good. I, That's a, I didn't know what you were going to say there. That's a good thing, right? <laughs> no, I yeah, it, it sounds grandiose when you're pleased with your own lyric, but uh, that's one that I was very pleased with. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. And when Phil Collins recorded that album, he, um, say, he said... Um, he got to the airport in Stockholm and Frida, Frida picked him up and she said, um, I've just got to get some petrol on the way. So they stopped at the petrol station. She filled up and she drove off and he said, you, you haven't paid. She said, no, no, it's my petrol station. He said, I went, oh, okay. And when they got to this huge hotel, she said, um, put anything you want on, on the bill. It's, it's my hotel. You can, you know, you're welcome. <laughs> wow. And he and he thought he was well off till he met her. <laughs> I mean, if you own your own, wow, that's a good story. That's a good story. Yeah. Um, I just want. How do you feel? I mean, I'm sure there's a a lot of it is a, is is pride and honour, but a lot of your songs have been referenced um, in other songs uh, and and are constantly covered. And how do you feel about that? I mean, for instance, like um, the first time you heard Beyonce's "Naughty Girl." Oh, fantastic! Yeah, no, I I, I love it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I heard there's a record out by a band called Pigs Pigs Pigs. Okay. Or Pigs Pigs, no, Five Times Pigs, I think, from Nottingham. Right. And they're punk rock, and they and they did hot stuff, and it, it's fantastic, and it's <laughs> it's absolute punk rock, and it's it works. I, 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 I love hearing different versions. I really do. It's um. I mean, it's almost flattering, yeah. Well, it is flattering, yeah. We did, um, as part of, I'm the musical director for Kylie, and um, we did a 
uh, a live stream show about a year ago called Infinite Disco. And she has a song called Slow. And we did it as a mashup with Love to Love Me Baby, but actually including the strings and the brass and, and, and the bass line, obviously replayed. And I can't begin to tell you how hard it was to actually try and replicate that bass sound. Oh, really? Yeah. And oh, it's probably, wow. you probably, at the time, it was probably plug it in, it done. Yeah. But it was, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that, that one worked very well. And I thought also the Disclosure and, and Sam Smith version of I Feel Love was, was one oh, of the yes. more interesting because obviously it was taking it to, to a different yeah, sound yeah. vocal and, and, and not just trying to do a remake. You must, it must be fun for you to just hear, as you say, like a thrash punk version of I mean, that sounds amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, a young kid the other day sent me his remix of um, I Feel Love <clears throat> and it didn't have the bass line on it. Mm. And it was, I thought it was fantastic. You know, it, I don't know if he's, I, I, I don't know who he is even. He just sent it to me. It's, yeah. But uh, no, it's, it's, it's lovely when that sort of thing happened. I mean, because I've got a, you know, I'm, a, I'm an old geezer and, and when I think how long ago that is, mm. To know that people are still enjoying it is mm. is just incredible because you know when it all ended, I I, I couldn't imagine you know because there's new music all the time. There's not space for old music. You think so? Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I do regard myself as so so lucky and I'm so grateful that I've been around. All these nice people and and all their goodness is rubbed off on me as well. You know, it's fantastic. Also, I I, I was just to say, I think with um, with streaming and and things like that, I think new music is now music from whenever. So, I mean, you will find kids that have a playlist of songs from 2022, 2015, 1978. And because it's predominantly a lot of what you were involved with was had an element of electronics to it, it doesn't sound dated. So no. to them, it is new. I mean, can you imagine a eighteen-year-old person hearing "I Feel Love" for the first time? It would sound like a new record. Yeah, yeah, it's peculiar, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I mean, we, we we I do a couple of orchestral shows, and we we did a version of it on that with a full symphony orchestra. Um, Oh, and it was in amongst other dance classics from from and and it just fitted completely perfectly. So I don't think you know. And as you say, with people like Beyonce and Kylie and Kylie and Sam Smith, and they're reintroducing the songs to a new audience all the time. And I just think you, in predominantly, it's a, a catalogue of timeless songs that will just stand will last forever. Yeah. Which is which is amazing. Where, where I know that you obviously stopped with with Donna, and you're doing other bits and pieces. I know that you're writing and you've written a book. Um, where where do we find you today? Are you is it obviously? I'm, I know you're still doing stuff in music, but I mean, what what are you up to? What I'm up to? Um, well, I'm still I still pot around in the studio because it's um, <clears throat> like yourself you. Something you can't stop, yes. Um, because my, I mean, it's very rare I drive home from anywhere without a lyric idea, and I'll write it down, even if I'm never going to use it, mm. because that's all I've ever done. Um, 
or, or a melody idea, I'll, I'll record it because that's all I've ever done. So I still have a lot to do with that, with music. I still read a lot. I still write stories, um, write quite a lot of stories. And um, actually, that sounds probably really conceited now, I'm writing my autobiography. I'm very glad. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm, I'm not far, but I'm about 30,000 words into it, so I'm, I'm, I'm on the way with it. Um, because it, I, I've got quite a few little interesting stories along the way in my life that, that I've seen and heard and happened to me. And so... I'm so, so happy about that. I'm so happy. I mean, it's one of the reasons, I mean, we met very briefly a couple of years ago, but it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because you do have these stories. And I think it is, yeah, I think that that book is a long time coming. Yeah. <laughs> and you can remember it all. That's amazing. Like, that's the best thing is that, you know, you've yeah, had this incredible life around all of the, the the biggest excesses of disco in the world and you've managed to stay sort of sane. Which is brilliant. Yeah. No, and just meeting, you know, people diverse as Gene Vincent and Michael Jackson, and you know, as you have yourself, you know, you, you meet people who are you expect to be so arrogant, and they're so shy and nice and kind, mm. and uh, um. The only arrogant ones you're going to find are the ones you can't sing or can't play very well. Yeah, who having to put put yeah, who having to put, to put up a bit of a front on something. And also, I loved what you said about you know one of your abiding memories of all of that was just the fun and the laughing, the laughs in the studio when you don't know you're making one yeah. of the biggest rec- selling records of all time. You're just no. having a laugh. It's yeah. brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> With your friends, these people, you know, yeah, these people are your friends, and you're just, you don't know what's going to. I mean, you might think, oh yeah, this sounds good, and this might be a hit, but you don't really think that. You're just having the time of your life, and no. whatever happens, happens. And I had a wonderful times with Georgia. We're we're still really good friends, but uh, we, you know, obviously we live a long way away and uh, don't see each other that much, but. When you meet up with old friends, it's just the same as ever, isn't it? Um, yeah. You must have been so proud and happy, though, when you had his little, his kind of resurgence a few years ago with Daft Punk. And, well, do you know yeah. the nicest thing? He, he was at um, the Apollo mm. um, about four years ago. Mm. He did it when he was doing his DJ tour. Yeah. And um, he suddenly stopped the show and he said, um, there's someone in the audience I want to announce because he knew I was there. He says, um, Pete, stand up. Now, Donna did this to me once as well, and I wouldn't stand up at the Royal Albert Hall. And I, I couldn't stand up. I, I, there was no way. And so he said, come on, stand up, Pete. I said, anyway, he said, okay, he's not going to stand up. I know he's out there. I just want to say, without Pete, I wouldn't be here tonight. Thank you very much. And that, wow. that was the nicest thing he'd, he's ever, ever said to me. Um, I, thought, I thought it was such a nice thing to say. That's beautiful. That's so yeah. lovely. Yeah. And if it makes you feel better, I've had 
people try and do that to me as well when I've seen shows and said about standing up and we don't we're not those people are we no no (laughs) the ones that are on the stage are on the stage for a reason and the ones that are on the other side yeah 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 but that is such a one I'm that's That's why I've 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 only started doing interviews in the last six or seven years really Mm. I'd I'd never given one before Mm. I've never been to accept gold discs Mm. or you know awards ever anywhere I'd never been to the parties that were the record company I've been a recluse all my life and uh, I came across a melody maker thing that back from the 70s where uh, he's interviewing Giorgio and then he said a skinny guy has just walked past me with a long moustache and long hair. And, I, and I, I've asked Georgia who he is, and he says, Pete Pelosi. And I went to say hello to him, but he wouldn't speak to me. <laughs> and that's something I've always done. But when I, but I've kind of ended up enjoying talking now. Um, I, I, I'm too self-conscious because I, most of my life I was... I've always been very shy, mm. always shy. Um, but but um, in these situations, it, it's 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 very easy to do it now. Um, it, I think it mainly started off with with um, Alistair Lloyd Webber. You know, when he, he have you been to one of those his um, songwriting things in the evenings? No, I haven't. No. Uh, oh he, yes, he, oh yes, he, no, I have. Yes, I know what you mean. Yes, yeah. I have. Yes, and he he got me up there to to talk to the crowd. And I'd never done that before in my life, and I thought, "Oh my god!" And I, and I got up there, and um, it started badly because he pronounced my name wrongly and everything. And then, but then I it was okay, and it was I was so pleased afterwards. And, and only about a year ago, someone came up to me and said, "I listened to your talk." Um, at the other songs they call it, don't they? Yeah. She said, I think it was the best talk I've ever heard there. And I thought, oh my God, this that that really made my day just even if that was the only person who thought that, it was just so nice to have brought pleasure to someone. Well, I suppose as someone who's spent their life writing words, you would be good at speaking them. Yeah. <laughs> you're, <don't>... you're... <laughs> You're like, I know. I, I do enjoy it now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know there's the kind of talking to the audience thing, which is more difficult, but I just think, you know, everything, and it, it's been everything you've said here. And, and there are some wonderful stories, and just hearing the joy that you still have recalling them is fantastic. So, um, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate oh, no, it's it. It's a pleasure. <laughs> um, it's really lovely to, uh, to see you. And um, I'm really looking forward to the book. Um, I know that that will be really really special yeah um, <laughs> i know it's a task believe me i'm one of my best friends is uh writes autobiographies for people and i know it's it's a lot but um take some time but you'll when you get well, there, it's, it's, I, i'm doing it in a different way it's 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 not structural it's not linear right I'm, I'm just jumping all over the place and i'm not doing the i was born in east barnet on the no, but they're the best there's, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep it interesting. Yeah, 
I'm yeah. sure it will be. I'm sure yeah. it will be. Thank you so much, Pete. Lovely to talk to you. And um, stay well, stay safe. And okay, I'll see you soon. Good. I hope it all turns out well. It will do. All right. Thank you very much. See you later.